Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even there. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too, too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. And where could I go from your spirit? And where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being. You knit me together when I was in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. <laughs> Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 is an absolutely incredible psalm. Contained within Psalm 139 is unparalleled theological insights. And at the same time, there's this glorious beauty of personal intimacy and passionate devotion. 
When you begin to understand Psalm 139, when you begin to grasp the truth of Psalm 139, it allows us to sing in our sorrows. It allows us to endure in the hardships. It allows us to worship with great passion and great devotion every single day of our life. And for the next five weeks, we are going to immerse ourselves in this song. And I am so excited. Because no matter who you are, this is an incredible psalm. If you are a student and you're struggling with the pressures of all the studies and the finals, you're stu- with all the pressures of, of culture and relationships and your hormones, your major tuition, this one's for you. Your young family and there's never enough time, enough sleep, enough energy and enough money, this one's for you. If you're in the bottom of the ninth of your life and you're wondering, what do my days have left? You see, it doesn't matter if you're single, if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're widowed. It doesn't matter if you've got your life together, if you're confused. It doesn't matter if you're in a great season or if you're in a valley. When we grasp this psalm, it will allow every single one of us who allow this psalm and the truth contained within, it will allow us to live with greater confidence, with assurance, with a deeper sense of peace, and with purpose. So for five weeks, we are just going to become students of Psalm 139. And for those of you who want the bonus round, I want to encourage you to memorize. Now, some of you say, I want to do, I I just quoted it for you. There's 24 verses. We're going to be five weeks. If you did five verses a week, you get it done in that last week, you get a little bit of a break. And and maybe some of you say, well, I can't do it. I've already had about three people from last night say, I'm going to memorize the whole thing. 24 verses. Maybe it's just, I'll take one verse a week. Or maybe there's a certain section of this because there's some beautiful, beautiful imagery in this. You say, that piece really speaks to me, and I'll memorize those three or four or five verses. Or there's 24 verses. Listen, you could do one verse an hour and be done by tomorrow at this time. <laughs> I'm just saying, to put this psalm deep in your heart and let it walk with you for the rest of your life. Now, there's something about the psalms. When you think about this, this book of this collection of poems and, and hymns. That the first part of the Old Testament, the first half of the Old Testament, by and large, is man's words to man. It's the history section. It's when one person says, this is what God has been up to in Israel, this is what he's up to in this world. Primarily, it's, it's one man writing to another man. The last half of the Old Testament are the prophets. And that is primarily God speaking to man. Here's where you're off track. This is where you need to get back on base. This is how you need to kind of straighten some things out. And tucked in the middle, in the middle of this wisdom literature, is this book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, it's man speaking to God. It's pouring out the highest praise and elation of life. It's pouring out the deepest despair and confusion of life. But it's man speaking to God. And never more clearly than in this psalm, Psalm 139. And so today... We're going to look at just the first six verses of this psalm. So if you have your Bible, notebook, tablet, uh, phone, whatever, I would encourage you to open to Psalm 139. You can follow along. And even if you're in a different translation than what I'm using, that might give you even greater insights as they use different words or different pictures with that. And as we look into these first six verses today, where I want us to start is the last verse of the section we'll be looking at today. Because there's something that happens as the psalmist begins to write. He finds that within these first five verses that we will look at, 
that he discovers and uncovers some truths that leave him with this, this profound conclusion. After just five verses into it, he comes to this conclusion and he says this, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. These first five verses, whatever we're going to look at, he says, this is so amazing. It is beyond amazing. I don't even have the capacity to grasp how amazing this is. I just know it's beyond what I can even, I don't have a compartment. I can't put my hands around this. I can't get my mind wrapped around this. I don't have handles for this. It's so much, it is exalted to a level that is so grand and so high that so transcends what I'm even capable of understanding. These truths. In the first, that's just the first five verses. And as you will see, as we go through this over these next few weeks, is that this psalm contains incredible theology, incredible, incredible truths about the character of our God. But the psalmist doesn't just stop there. It's not just a formal doctrinal statement. It is a personal experience. He doesn't just talk about God. He just does, doesn't just list off attributes of our sovereign God, though those are all in there. He's talking directly to God from a very personal standpoint. And this is my prayer, and this is my hope, and this is my desire for every single one of us in this room or watching online. My prayer is this, that as we spend these five weeks in this psalm, that this psalm will become our psalm. That his words will become our words. That his prayers will become our prayers. And at the end of it, we can say, these are my words to our God. You excited? I know I am. All right. So let's get into this. And I just want to, today, I just want to go phrase by phrase for, through these first six verses. And then I want to end with the phrase that pays after the, all these other ones. And just what I really want you to walk away with. So he starts off and he says this. Oh, Lord, and we have to stop right there. We're five letters into it, we have to stop. And we've talked about this before, but I think it, it, it bears repeating. In your Bibles, you may have noticed that sometimes the word Lord is in all capital letters, and sometimes it's a capital L with lowercase o-r-d, to which you probably thought, this is just lazy editing by the publishers of my Bible. They overlooked it, a few typos, not a big deal, you'll give them grace. That's not the case at all. The reality is, though they're the same words, one, the one that's all capitalized and one that's got lowercase, in Hebrew, they're different words. And they just, in, in English, they're both translated as the word Lord, but the Hebrew words are completely different. One of them is a title, and one of them is a name. The one with the lowercase letters, that's the title. That's the word Adonai. That's the title. The one with all caps is the name. That's the, the theonym, the name of God. So, for instance, if you're familiar with Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you'll notice that the first one is all capitalized, and the second one has lowercase. So, one is this name and this title. So, if you want to put it like in, in our context, it'd be like saying, O Bob, our pastor, how ordinary is your name. All right. But to say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. It's this name and this title. So the, the lowercase one, the, the, this one isn't on the test. This is just for free. The lowercase, the, that word, the title, the Adonai, it's this title of authority. I mean, in some way, it's like a land lord. It's someone who owns the house, who has the authority to ask for the rent. Lord of the rings, that kind of thing. Uh, in the UK, the house of lords. It's people who have authority. So when we're talking about God as Lord, it's the one who has authority. But this other one that's all capped here, the name of God. 
You have to go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses is standing before the burning bush, and God is telling him to go to Egypt, and he's all stuttering and concerned about all this, and he's, he's trying any way to get out of it, and he says, well, I don't even know, who, who, do, I, who, who, who do I tell them that sent me? Well, what, we don't, I don't even know who to tell them sent me. And that's when God says to, them, to him, tell them, I am that I am. This is the very name of God. Now, I don't want to get... Uh, into too much uh, deep stuff, but it's referred to as the tetragrammaton, tetra being four, the tetragrammaton, these four letters. We studied this years ago, yod, hey, vav, hey, which translated Y-H-V-H. It's where, and there's no, there's no vowels in there, and, and over the years we've put vowels in there, but it's where we get the word Yahweh, or, and this is a bad translation, Jehovah. It's the very name of God, and it was so sacred to the Hebrew people, they would not even pronounce it. And he says, your name. And when, when he said to Moses, I am that I am, it was this picture of the uncreated one, the one has, who is eternal, the one who is who's infinite, the one who is the source of all life and all things. This is Yahweh. He's the unchanging one. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's the ungoverned one. He is sovereign and ruler over all of the universe and all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, uh, on earth, above earth, and under the earth. He is over it all. He's the unleashed one. He is the unlimited God Almighty of the universe. So right when we get to the beginning, the psalm says, let's not forget who is the object of everything. Oh, Lord, this Yahweh, eternal creator of all things. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You, <laughs> you have searched me. Like you didn't send one of the minions. You didn't send one of your angels. You didn't ask for a little brief. You didn't ask for someone to just kind of report. You decided that you would search me. I mean, we talk about how, how we're to seek after God. How we're to grow in our knowledge of God. How we're to, to know more about him. That we would search and we would know God. But here he's saying, God, you search and you know me. You've searched me. I mean, this is the ultimate background check. And he says, you have investigated me thoroughly. And I don't know if you've ever been investigated thoroughly. I, I don't... I don't think I want that. Have someone dig into all of it. This is not meant to be political at all. Last May, some of you have heard the name uh, Jeff Bezos. He owns Amazon.com. Fifth wealthiest man in the world. And uh, he bought the Washington Post. I guess he wanted to be able to have newspapers delivered to his home. He bought the Washington Post. Last May, this ultra-billionaire took 20 or 30, depends on which account you read, 20 or 30 of his investigative reporters from the Washington Post, and he said, this is your assignment. 20 or 30 investigative reporters, their full-time job, and this is his quote, dig into every facet of Donald Trump's life. He said, I want you to unearth everything there is to know. 20 or 30 people full-time. That's a background check. I wouldn't, want any, I wouldn't even want one person full-time looking into my history, digging up stuff. You put those 20 or 30, but now we're talking about God. He says, God, you have searched me. It's no wonder he comes to the conclusion, he says, <laughs> and you know me. <laughs> I mean, if God would do that kind of a search, that kind of thorough investigation, he knows me. 
But for him, he's just amazed that God himself would choose to look at his life and to be known. He knows who I am. He knows all about me. Again, it reminds me of that that picture from Psalm 8 that I just referred to when the psalmist says, when I think about the heavens and the work of your hands, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, and then he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God, you got the universe to run. Why do you even care who I am that, that you would even know me? See, this piece alone would have him come to this point where he says, man, this is too wonderful for me. This is too lofty that God would do this about little old me. And he knows me. I like how Paul puts this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Now we see a, uh, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Look at this. Even as I am fully known, this God of the universe knows me completely. And then the psalmist just gets into some of the specific details about this. He begins to relay, what does this mean when you investigate me that you would know me? And so he starts off in verse 2 and he says, so you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Now this is interesting. This is a pretty obvious observation that anyone could make. To know when you sit down, I mean, we could make it of each other today. To see that you sat down, that you stood up. Ron leads us, we sit down, we stand up. It's just not that big of a deal. And it really is a pretty, like, throwaway detail in our lives. When did we sit down, when did we stand up? I mean, think about this. If someone, one of you, put me down as a reference and your future employer um, calls me, says, hey, uh, so-and-so put you down for reference. What can you tell me about her? Well, let me tell you. I saw her at church last week. She came in. She sat down. Oh, yeah. And not only that, when we started singing, she stood up. And, and, when I was preaching... She sat back down. I was like, who cares about that? This detail doesn't matter. This is a throwaway detail. And what he's saying is, listen, even in the smallest little minuscule details of my life, God, you're aware of every single one of them. And then he contrasts that on the other end of the spectrum from something that is so throwaway, something that any one of us could observe to something that none of us really are aware of. He says, you perceive my thoughts like those things that that no one's aware of. Now, granted, if you know someone, if you know them well, if you're close with them, there are some things you know how they think. There are some things that will happen, a scene or a a person or whatever, and you can look at them, and you just a glance, and you know exactly what they're thinking. Am I right? Okay, so you know that, but you don't know all their thoughts. You know how they might be thinking about this. You know what, what they thought, what exactly was going through their mind on this one, but not all their thoughts. He says, you perceive my thoughts. Even those who are closest to us. My wife, she knows how I think. She knows how I respond. She doesn't know all my thoughts. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts would tell. I'm not going to sing that for you, but she doesn't know all my thoughts. You don't know all of the thoughts of anybody. Even if someone says, tell me what you're thinking, a penny for your thoughts. I'm like, give me more money than that and I'll give you started. You wouldn't even tell them all your thoughts because they're coming so fast you wouldn't have time to relay them. And he perceives all my thoughts. 
all my thoughts from afar. Now, we could look at that and say, well, that's because God is so high and lifted up. He's in the heavens. He's, you know, far away, and, and we're down here. Well, we've already seen that's not the case, that, yes, he is transcendent that way, but, but God's so close. He's investigating us. He knows everything. He even knows when we sit, stand up and when we sit down. I don't think this is saying, okay, God, you're off in a distance. Cue Bette Midler from a distance. God is watching us. No, 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 that's not what this is talking about. You perceive my thoughts from afar. I think what he's saying is, you perceive my thoughts when they're even far from me, before they're formed in my mind. You know before I even know. You know what I'm going to think before I think them. You know these things. And he's just amazed by this. God, these details that anybody and everybody can see and this part of me that nobody knows do it all. The insignificant and the invisible. The throwaway details of when I sat down. Who keeps a record of that, God? And those things, my dreams, my fears, my motives, my dark desires, my insecurities, pride, all the secret deep recesses of my mind, you know them before I even think them. It's an amazing picture of a God who knows us that well. And then he goes on. He says, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms or with Hebrew poetry especially, there's a literary technique that's often used in Hebrew poetry. It's called a couplet, where they will basically reiterate a same truth twice with different words. Just, it's just kind of a way that they do this. And you can say, well, that's a couplet there. He's just talking again. He's showing another picture of how God is aware of everything. And maybe so. But what if? And this is just a what if, okay? What if this, you discern my going out and my lying down. What if this is code for something far deeper? What if David is saying a whole lot more here than just these words about, yeah, you know when I drive off and you know when I take a nap? What if he's saying, God, you know those seasons in my life. You know those circumstances in my life. Like, like when I was going out to take on Goliath. When I walked in faith. When I showed such, showed such bold courage. When nothing mattered more to me than defending your name, more so than even my own life and my own desires. In that moment of victory, God, you know when I go out. And God, when I was lying down with Bathsheba, when I didn't care about you, I only cared about my own lust, fulfilling my own selfish desires breaking your law and adultery, lying and covering it up. God, you know about that. God, you know about when I was going out of my way to be a father to the fatherless, when I was going above and beyond the call of duty, when the fatherless, crippled son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, was off living in a wasteland, how I brought him into my home, I adopted him into my family, I brought him to my table, I let him be my own son. You saw me going out there 
What a beautiful, bold picture of, of this justice and mercy to those who are unfortunate. Or how about when I lie down on the job and my responsibility as a dad? The story with Absalom and Adonai and how they were doing things that were disgracing my name and the kingdom. And I didn't step in and I didn't interfere and I didn't stop them. And the result was disastrous. What, if he, what he's saying here is this. God, you, you know when I'm up and you know when I'm down. You know all the good and you know all the bad. You know all the victories and all the defeats. All the successes and all the failures. All the obedience and all the sin. You know it all. You're familiar with all my ways. There's no mystery. You know, in Job, we read these words. His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. Or how about this in Hebrews? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, when you begin to understand this aspect of God, could be a little unsettling. The result of understanding that God sees all of this is that we can live in fear or we can live with confidence. And it happens. Adam and Eve, they're living in fear. Why? Because they're hiding from God. They're trying to keep this all-knowing God from knowing something. It's impossible. You know, Jonah, running from God. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. To live in this fear or to live with confidence. Joseph, when he's been wronged and he's in a foreign land and his family doesn't even know if he's alive or not and he's in a dungeon and yet he has confidence because he knows God is with me. God sees what's going on. God hasn't forgotten me. He hasn't forsaken me. And he lives with confidence in the worst of situations. The Apostle Paul who tried to do it on his own but failed miserably and comes to this conclusion, I am the chief of all sinners. I am the worst of all sinners. I mean, he says in Romans 7, you know, the things I do I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do I end up doing. I'm a desperate, wretched man. But he has confidence because of the grace of Jesus and forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to which God has called me heavenward. God knows it all. The good and the bad, the victories, the obedience and the sin, he knows it all. But I walk. I walk with confidence that God knows me that well. It's an interesting thing to have a God who knows every aspect of our life. Verse 4, he says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. If you ever really want to annoy someone, I've got a great little thing for you. If they're talking to you, listen and try to end every sentence for them. Try to anticipate it. My, my wife hates it when I do this. Don't just do it once. Do it all the way through the conversation. Every phrase, and they'll say, you're not even listening. Absolutely. It's really, you're listening very well because you're trying to figure out what they're going to say. You might not remember any of it, but you are att attentive. Drives you crazy, and you might get it right sometimes, and you might not get it right sometimes. And maybe there's sometimes you can already anticipate some of that. But God, 
God knows before the word is even on our tongue, before we even start uttering it, he says, I already know completely what you're going to say. These words will come out, yes. I already know. Maybe that's why the psalmist is so honest in the psalms. Do you ever notice how honest he is? Just unfiltered, just pours it out. Because he says, you already know what I'm going to think before I'm thinking it. And you know what I'm going to say before I say it, so I might as well go ahead and say it. You're God, you know it all anyway. And he just pours it out there. All of this, before there's a word even on my tongue, you know it completely. This is what he understood, because he ends up with that Lord again. There's that name again. This one who's the uncreated one, who's the unlimited one, who, who's all-powerful and sovereign over it all. He understood who this God was. This summer, we're going to spend 13 weeks studying the book of Romans. I'm really excited about that. Let's get through this one first. But, but anyway, in Romans 11, after Paul's just been laying out these incredible truths about God and his grace and the law and works and faith and all this stuff, he gets to this point where he just stops, and there's this part called the doxology where he says, oh, it just stops, says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who could ever tell anything to God? This is what they all knew about God, is that he is omniscient, that he knows all things. This is an amazing thing. It, it, it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive when you first hear it. God can never learn anything because he already knows it. There's nothing new for him to learn. He doesn't forget anything. He knows all things. That this God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Everything there is to know about the universe, the, you know, the, 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 the cosmos, astronomy, he knows it all because he created it. Everything there is to know about molecular biology, everything there is to know about quantum physics, everything there is to know about neuroscience, he knows everything. And they're aware of this, this omniscient God of theirs. But he's coming to this conclusion, not only about that stuff, you are omniscient, about me. You're omniscient about me. Every detail, every hidden thought, every motive that I'm not even sure of, you know it all. I love when Jesus talks about how valuable we are when he says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Not just how many there are. They each have a number and he has them cataloged. Every single detail of our life. Oh Lord, you know all of this stuff. And then verse 5 he says, you hem me in, behind and before. And when we look at this as the presence of God, this bleeds into next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, that God surrounds us, that he encircles us behind us and before us. Well, that's, that's next week. We'll get into all that. But you hem, hem me in, behind and before. What if we looked at it not as a spatial thing in the presence of God, but what if for this week we looked at it in a chronological way, like our past and our future? That God, you're, you're aware of these things. You know what I've done. You know what I will do. You know what I thought. You know what I will think. You know what I've said. You know what I will say. You know what I've gone through. You know what I will go through. Both ends of this. Now, on Friday this week, I was at uh, Christ the King Church for Steve Mason's uh, memorial service. And a part of the service um, was talking about some of the, the different axioms, the different phrases, the different sayings that he did throughout life. And one that was a big part of Christ the King, that was a big part of his life um, early on, and it came up two or three times in the service, was this whole idea of 
hope for the future, forgiveness for the past. And, and that's, what, that's what the psalmist is saying. You're with me behind all the things I've done, all the mistakes I've made, all the words I wish I could take back, all the thoughts I wish I would have never thought, and there's forgiveness there. And you know what I'm going to face, and you go before me on all that, and there's no surprises. There is not ever a thing that you will go through today, this week, this year, or the rest of your life where God will say, whoa, I did not see that one coming. I got to be honest, that one caught me off guard. I mean, I know I know a lot of stuff, but whoa, dude. God will never say that. He's aware of it all. You hem me in behind and before. And then this phrase, you have laid your hand upon me. Let's just camp on this one for a minute. See, that phrase at first might be a little bit negative to us. Don't you lay a hand on me, we'd say. Some of us as kids knew when our parents laid a hand on us. Any of you ever been grabbed by the earlobe, back of the neck, the arm? I know we don't do this these days. My father extended the right hand of fellowship to a certain part of my anatomy. <laughs> he laid a hand upon me. So we look at that phrase and like, oh, that's what you're getting at. Because God knows everything, we get the divine spanking. No, that's not it. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Again, I don't want to sidetrack you on big words. Anthropomorphism. This is an anthropomorphic description of God. Anthro, man. There's a, a human trait given towards God. You see this throughout Scripture. Anthropomorphic terms. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the land to strongly strengthen those who are, you know, that's, like God has eyes. Is the arm of the Lord too short to help? You know, has the ear of the Lord grown deaf? So it's, we put these human attributes onto God. The hand of God is another one. It's just this, we put a human attribute. And the hand of God, in the Hebrew mind, the hand of God represented a lot of things. When you talk about the hand of God, it was the hand of provision. It was the hand of protection. It was the hand that you could trust. Isn't that why Jesus hanging on the cross said, Lord, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. You can do all things. You can provide for me. You can protect me. The hand of God represented his authority. The hand of God represented his greatness. The hand of God represented his power. The hand of God represented the creative nature of our God. This was the hand of God. God himself says in Isaiah, My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. Earlier in Isaiah 40, it says, he holds the waters of earth in the hollow of his hand, and he marks out the heaven with the span of his hand. It was the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the power of God. And he's laid his hand on me, it says. You know, this laid his hand on me, that has some meaning as well. Whenever something was selected for a divine purpose, hands were laid on it. On the Day of Atonement, when a sacrifice was made for all of the sins of Israel, they would lay their hands on the head of the goat before it was sacrificed because it was being, it was being hand-selected. Bigger words, it was being sanctified, set apart for a sacred purpose. They would put their hands on the sacrifice. They would put their hands on a priest when he was given this role to represent God to the people. They would put their hands on him because he was selected for a holy, for a divine purpose. 
They put their hands and laid uh, the oil of the anointing of the prophet because they were selected. There was a, a beauty about being selected, about being handpicked, about, about being set apart for a divine purpose. And then there was the laying on of hands. It was a part of a blessing. And Jesus, it says, laid his hands on the little children and he blessed them. There's this cool picture in um, Genesis 48 when Joseph, who's been off in Egypt forever, He's reunited with his family, and they bring his old pops down. Here comes Jacob, now being called Israel. Israel's old, and he sees his son that he thought was dead. And Joseph brings his two boys out, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he wants Jacob to bless them. And he strategically places them, because we, we might get into this next week, because there's something about that right hand. So he puts his boys up in front of Jacob, and Jacob does something. He crosses his arms like, oh, crud, I didn't get the right blessing. But he crosses his arm and he lays his hands on their head and he blesses them. See, when he says, you have laid your hand on me, this is the mighty hand of God and you have selected me for your divine purposes and you have blessed me. Now, here's what I long for. I long for us to own this psalm, to own this truth. That God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that the God of the psalmist is our God. And his hand has not changed at all. And his hand has been laid on you. And he has selected you. He has picked you for his divine purpose. And he has put his hand of blessing on you. Maybe that's what Paul was getting at when he, church, when he preaches or sends the letter in the book of Colossians. When he says, therefore as God's chosen people, hand selected, holy for a divine purpose, and dearly loved blessed the hand of God is on you let me ask you a question don't, don't answer this but have you ever met somebody and right from the very first time you met it was just like man, you just clicked you just liked them just like you got along it's like man this, this he or she whatever it was just and whatever it was personality wise a little fiery attitude they're funny or they're organized whatever it is and you're like this is like going to be a friend this could be a soulmate and so immediately you just it's like like from the very beginning it's like we're besties this is amazing you know so you say hey let's you know let's be let's be lab partners this would be great let's share a locker let, let's let's be roommates we'll we'll lease this apartment and this would be great let's hey, let's plan a vacation let's get engaged well, you know whatever it might be and so you got this, and it's just going fantastic because this person's just amazing. But then something happens. The longer you know them, the less you like them. Because what at first you thought was kind of cool really becomes annoying. And then there's some things you didn't find out until later. And some baggage and some idiosyncrasies and some personality traits and some issues. And suddenly now you're stuck for the rest of the semester as their lab partner and you want to blow them up. <laughs> you have to live with them until the lease runs out. And worse yet, you're going to have to spend two weeks in Vienna with them in the spring. It's already been paid for. You ever experience that when you know someone and the more you know them, the less you like them? The psalmist says, this is just the opposite. That God knows us so much. He knows everything about us. The good and the bad. The insignificant details. The hidden stuff that no one else knows. He knows it all. And he 
puts his hand on us. And he selects us. And he blesses us. All right. Now I want to give you the phrase that pays. This is the one I want us to live with. He knows you. And he chose you. He knows all about you. And he still chose you. To think, what would it be like if we lived with this reality, if we believed this reality, that this almighty God of the universe, he knows me and he chose me. In fact, what if we made this more personal and said, you know, he knows me and he chose me and we said it every single day. In fact, would you practice this right now? Say this with me. He knows me and he chose me. Now say it like you kind of believe it. He knows me and he chose me. To spend every day when you wake up to just get out of bed and say, you know what? As I start this day, I got to remember this. He knows me. He knows what I did. He knows what I'm going to face. He knows what I'm going to think before I think it. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. He knows everything I do. He knows me and he still chose me. I wake up today and he has hand selected me and he's put his hand of blessing upon me. He knows me and he chose me. It's no wonder with those first five verses that the psalmist comes to this dramatic conclusion. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I don't even have the capacity to fathom the truth that's contained in this. It's unbelievable because of who God is. My friend Chris Henry, part of our church, he wrote a book. The book's called Chosen, and it's kind of the story of his life. And in this book, and this is like my favorite quote out of the whole book, he said this, this is a conclusion he came to in his life. He wrote, I'm not as important as I thought I was, but I'm more valuable than I ever dreamed. I and myself am not nearly as important as I made myself out to be. But I'm far more valuable than I ever dreamed. Oh God, creator of the universe, the uncreated one, the unlimited one, you've like investigated my life. You know me better than I know myself. Details like my sitting and standing patterns, my thoughts, my motives, my fears, my insecurities, my doubts, all of the darkness, all the beauty of my mind, the good and the bad, the victories, the defeats, the success, the failures, the obedience and the sin. I'm familiar with all of it. Can't even talk without you already knowing what I'm going to say. And my past, my future, you walk before me, taking care of that. And you've laid your hand on me. Your great and mighty hand has hand-selected me and blessed me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So here's the challenge for you this week. Memorize whatever you want. But every day, and maybe multiple times throughout the day, to just say those words, he knows me, and he chose me. He knows me, and he chose me. When we own those words and we're owned by those words, when we grip those words, we can live with confidence and assurance and peace and 
purpose. Immerse yourself in this unbelievable psalm. So today as we close, uh, Renee and Ron and, and the team are going to sing a song. And I'm going to ask that you remain seated. Don't sing along. The lyrics will be on the, on the side screens. It's a song called 139. It's based on this entire psalm. And I want you to just, just spend some time and let the truth of this sink in. He knows you. And he chose you. And then I'll close this in prayer.